Did you ever think you were made it? I feel I'm so close I could take sweet victory I know this life meant for me yeah, why would you bet on Goliath when we got bet David? Value taming, giving values contagious. This world of entrepreneurs, we get no value to hate it. Now they run, homie, look what I become. I'm the, I'm the one. I'm Patrick Bedevi, host of Item, and today we're gonna talk about China. 4G and why this Air Force general got up in front of Biden, McConnell, all these other politicians at the White House, told them the threat of China and 5G, and eventually he got fired. General Robert Spaulding, thanks for coming out. Appreciate you for making the Thank, time. Thanks for having me. Great yes, to be so here. Uh, so let's let's get right into it. So pre going into China, what is your journey of you becoming a general at the Air Force, and then from there? being part of National Security Council. How did that go about? I came into the Air Force uh, before um, you know, I really knew much about the military. And you know, my picture of the military was about peeling potatoes and somebody yelling at you, you know, essentially Gomer sure. Pyle. And I saw the movie Top Gun and it, was, it fascinated me and really got me excited. So I joined and, and just went in um, with no expectations, just had fun and, um, and really just uh, worked hard, but also played hard. But, um, you know, I wanted to fly jets, and that was, uh, that was what got me started. And, um, you know, one thing led to another. Um, I had an opportunity uh, two years before I was supposed to leave the service to go live in China, and so I took it. And you know, the rest is, is kind of history because when, that, when I made that fateful decision, and it was really about, um, you know, thinking about what uh, opportunity I had to go live abroad, but also how strategic China was in our future, it really opened doors for me that, quite frankly, I, I would have never considered. I even had had no clue uh, about. So, literally, so there was no plans of that. Happening. There was no plans. There was okay. really, really no plans. In fact, I didn't want a career in the Air Force. So, you, you know, I didn't look to become a general. In fact, when my wife uh, heard that I, you know, had made it, she laughed. <laughs> Why is that? That you've made it She's as like, a general? Like, how could you make that? Because <laughs> that for rank? me, you know, I mean, I was an E4 in the military, in the army. You know, when we saw generals, we would shiver. It's like this is a general. You know, right. they, this is a big deal. But for me, deal. it was you know just having fun, serving That's my country. It's pretty wild how you think of it that way. That's yeah, pretty wild how you think of it. What is the percentage of people becoming generals? It's minuscule. Oh, it's, it's very, not, very yeah, small very to many. see that star on the Humvee or whatever you're being driven around. I mean, that's pretty unique to have that, but. What year was it when you went to China? I'm curious. So first time it was uh, 2002. So I actually went to language training at Monterey, the Defense Language Institute. BLI. Studied yep. China for, uh, for 52 weeks. It's a 62-week course. I left in 52 weeks in June of 2002. Steph and I and our two boys went in the country and, uh, and lived in Shanghai in Pudong on the east side of the city. And that's the side that the Communist Party built up in the 90s, so that's where the Jin Mao building is and all, a lot of the financial district of Shanghai. And uh, we just traveled the country and lived with the people and, and it was probably one of the most phenomenal two years of my life. It was a phenomenal experience. It was incredible. You. you know, the people were great. Uh, they're hardworking, resilient people. And, you know, having learned the language before I got there, I could communicate and really travel all over and really got to know how they think. And, you know, uh, in a lot of ways, um, you know, not really fully understanding what was going on. I don't think you can live in China and fully understand what it is to be Chinese. But for me, uh, from, as an outsider looking at that country, it was, it was exciting and it was, it was a place that I wanted to be. And so when I left in 2004, I told Stephanie that, um, 
hey, we're gonna, we're gonna, uh, I'm, when I retire from the Air Force, I'm gonna come back here and I'm gonna start a, start a business and get so wealthy. So that was the plan to want to come was, back. That was the plan. A, now, what's your rank at that time when you were there in O2? I, so when I got there, I had just made major. Just made major. Just, so you were already. Uh, you were already. I've uh, been in ten years at the time. You've been in ten years. Your major. Right. And what was your job? What were you doing in China for U.S.? So the Olmstead program, which is a program that uh, I was selected for, essentially picks three officers from each branch of the service and sends them to language school. It's not for you to go into a country that does has English as a as a national language, but a foreign language, and so, um, and then send you in the country for two years. And I went to a university in Shanghai, Tongji University, and uh, studied MBA courses, and really it was about getting to know the people. It was really becoming immersed in what it was to understand uh, China, the Chinese culture and history and the language. So does China know that you're going in as a major? Is that a, a, a a something that it's a basic open conversation? Hey, we're sending one of our majors from Air Force to spend so a couple years with you? One of the great things about the Olmstead uh, Scholar Program is that you do everything on your own. So you, once you're accepted into the program and you go to language training, it's uh, upon your responsibility to go and get accepted into university to apply for a visa because they want you to understand what it takes to, to travel to a foreign country. And so it's almost like being on a sabbatical. You're not, you don't, um, Got it. you don't have a detailer that you're talking to. You're basically cut loose on your own, uh, on your own recognizance to go and, and, and figure it out. And but you're getting paid. So the military still getting paid. Okay. I mean, that, that's, I mean, it is, a, it is really a, an incredible opportunity because Sounds you are, like it, yeah. you're really learning, uh, because you, you don't have a lot of support. You know, you're out there, um, by yourself, trying to figure it out and you know there was you know how so how do I get there become a student get a student visa but also how do I get my family in there and how do I make sure that they so we had to take them out of country every uh, 60 or every 90 days to six months to renew the visa and come back in so so China didn't know you were there and you were a major they didn't I was not there in an official capacity That's I wasn't what there I was on a, so I wasn't there on an official visa I, or, or on a <coughs> diplomatic passport I was there on a on a basically a tourist passport with a student visa going to a university. Now, when I met Chinese, I would tell them, hey, I'm, I'm in the Air Force, I'm a B-2 pilot. Of course, uh, they thought that was quite strange that I would be there, but you know. That's exactly what I would be thinking about because from what you read on culture, you sense a certain level of, not uh, uh, paranoia or suspicious, but why are you here what do you do? Are you a spy? You'd look like a CIA guy. I mean, if you go there, I'd look at you saying maybe you are working and you're trying to gather intel to bring you back. But that was actually not the case. It, but this is 2002 to 2004. And what was happening there, if you remember, we had just, China just entered the WTO. So it was, it was breakneck speed to grow the company, our country and grow the economy. Mm -hmm. And all of my neighbors were there building factories for Fortune 100 companies. And so... There was a lot less um, scrutiny on me as uh, a military guy. I think it was um, the country at the time was focused on making money, and, and you know certainly people found out who I was, but I didn't get a lot of scrutiny. That's good to hear that they didn't do anything. Now, the second time when you went back was what year? The second time I went back was in December of 2016, and that was to be the defense attache in Beijing. 
And this time around, this is a little bit more public. It's a, they know a little bit more that you're going or still oh, same situation? It's, no, this is, this is definitely, I am the senior defense official um, representing the Secretary of Defense and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs to um, the uh, Chinese military, the People's Liberation Ar Ar Army in Beijing. And so I, for example, I got there a week before they took the UUV. I don't know if you remember, but they took one of our underwater gliders uh, in the South China Sea. Uh, essentially while uh, one of our ships was trying to retrieve it. And so there was a big... Um, controversy. There was a big dip diplomatic controversy, and that was beginning to be a, a crisis. And I was the one that negotiated the return with the People's Liberation Army of that glider mm -hmm. to, the, to, the, to the U.S. What, what was the biggest difference you felt culturally uh, and uh, uh, spirit from 0204 to December 2016? I never saw a guy with a gun when I was there from 2000 to 2004. When I got back in 2016, there were people with guns uh, at the subway stops, not all of them, but they were there. And you mm -hmm. could definitely feel a palpable change in kind of the tone of the country. Now, some of that may be because it's, it's not Shanghai, it's Beijing, which is the nation's capital. But clearly, um, things were a heck of a lot more tense when I had been there in 2002 to 2000. Just a completely, in my mind, different vibe. What, from your experience, and what, obviously, to write a book like this specific to China, you've had to do a lot of research to be able to write what you've written here. Uh, do you think a part of that happened where they are now growing up uh, uh, to the point where they're not growing up, that's maybe a bad word, they're becoming a bigger, I mean, GDP-wise, they grew, uh, you know, to being at a higher number than what they were before. They're becoming a little bit more competitive. 2008 Olympics, it was a statement, they're opening, so hey, we are here to compete. Do you think a part of that is also their level of confidence to know that we can compete with everybody, let's be a little bit more cautious and Protectious, uh, protect, uh, protective of what, what we're trying to build, so look out there, or that was just a different city for you? Well, no, I think uh, there's a couple of things. One, the party, the Communist Party, was really concerned about corruption. If you go back to 1989, the, the Tiananmen Massacre, the three things that the Chinese Communist Party learned uh, at, during that time was, one, the Communist Party was under attack by elements within China in league with the United States. Two, that openness was great for globalization in terms of science and technology and economics and finance, but in terms of ideology, they needed to pour a whole lot more into uh, what they were doing in order to prevent their population from becoming democratized. And three, if the party ever became separated from the people, that the party would fail. And you can see that there's a definite paranoia on the part of the party in terms of not wanting to make sure that while their people are very advanced in terms of the technology and the business models with regard to the e-economy, they're very cautious about that kind of getting out of control. And so I think, you know, they are still in their minds perfecting their ability to control people, but at the same time, they're concerned about, you know, at any moment this thing could become unraveled. So it creates this kind of you know They really believe that. They really believe that um, that it could any, at any moment um, the party could essentially lose control because the population essentially um, awakes. And, um, and so it, I think it, it plays into their, that paranoia. 
Yeah. So, so are they more concerned internally for it to collapse or somebody from the outside to come and penetrate and confuse them and divide, you know, uh, from within? I think it's a combination. It's a combination of um, internally in terms of are they, uh, do they have legitimacy in the eyes of the people? And then what are some things that might, in their minds, confuse the people in terms of, you know, um, democracy or human rights or civil liberties. So with you now being who you are and, you know, you were with the National Security Council, senior director of strategy, you've written this book, it's very obvious on who you are and what your position is at. Uh, is someone like you able to go back with no issues? Like, would you be comfortable saying, I'm going to take my family to China? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. No. Why is that? Well, because clearly um, what I say in that book is that the Communist Party is not uh, great for the Chinese people, and that's not something that they appreciate. People like me saying, um, certainly the way that you become a China expert in the United States is that you go to China. Uh, in order to go to China, that you say things that actually the Communist Party doesn't get angry about. And so uh, they may not even give me a visa, but even if they were to give me a visa, I would be concerned that I would go there and um, they would they would find some reason to not let me go back. Not let you come back here. Right. Even though, well, I mean, today would be a good time to actually keep you if you went over there. So if you have right. any plans of staying in right. China, you may want to go I don't, there. I don't want to go for back a long here. vacation. Yeah. So, so but, uh, let, me, let me go back to something you said, because the other thing that, that really um, happened, and you mentioned 2008, and it's important because it's not only the paranoia that they have, but also if you go back to Deng Xiaoping, and what he said about hiding capability and biding time. Mm -hmm. This is not a change in what the Communist Party, who they are. It's really in 2008 when, when our financial system essentially said that we really don't know how to run uh, global finance, uh, that they really believed that they had arrived. And so there, there's also an element of they've been you know, having to play second fiddle uh, based on the century of humiliation and the fact that you know, they were the dominant uh, society for 5,000 years. They had 100 years of bad luck and now they're back on top. They're, they're ready now to essentially um, take a leading role in the international system. So you know, part of that goes with not just, you know, that vibe is not just with you know, how they treat their population, but all, also how they treat the, the West, how they treat foreigners, because there is an element that says, we're not going to back down anymore. We're going to be, we're going to stand up for, um, for what we believe, and, and we're going we're gonna to make a name for ourselves in the international order, and we're, we're going we're gonna to fight to have our interests um, uh, uh, respected. You mean them? Them. Yeah. So you say in the book, I mean, obviously, I got a lot of uh, notes here. I got seven, eight pages of notes to go through with you. But you said in the book uh, that you, not you said this, I think Steve Bannon said this, but you quoted it. The biggest threat to America is not Al-Qaeda. The biggest threat to America is not, actually, this is you saying it in the book, I believe, because Steve Bannon said something else. The biggest threat to America is not Al-Qaeda. It's not ISIS. It's not Putin. It's not any of these guys. It's China. You really believe that? I believe it. I think it's the most consequential existential threat not just to america just to democracy the world's ever seen and it's because it's cloaked itself in this picture of adoption of the international norms that were established uh, and the rules and norms and the systems and the institutions that were established after world war ii perpetuated through the cold war and essentially in our thoughts was dominant after the end of the cold war it was they wrapped themselves in that and so there's a belief that they 
that they accept those principles. And, and what they say is they, they want to have the international system um, essentially correspond to their interests. But what they don't say what their interests are, and their interests are essentially counter to uh, every democratic principle that, that we stand for, human rights, civil liberties, rule of law. Uh, it's interesting when you say that because that's a pretty bold statement to make. You hear a lot of people talking about climate change. You hear a lot of people talk about cyber, you know, cyber war, all this other stuff, which you talk about in the book as well. But to say China is at the highest level more than ISIS, Al Qaeda, Putin, those are some that's strong statements to be making. But let's go a little bit back to you are working uh, as the senior director strategy of uh, the National Security Council, and you go in. You said you have two reasons why you wanted to be a part of them. One was to educate the members about who they are, and the other one was to ensure the security of 5G for U.S. and also other countries, right? Not just U.S., right. everybody else that's involved. And then you, you're giving this one talk, and you brought some other people to also give inside. There was a lot of dialogue, and then it got a little bit heated, and then you held the meeting back, kind of trying to bring everybody together. Hey, this is a good question. We're having this discourse. This is a very good thing. Where did it go from there to the you know press leaking you know being leaked to the press and then from there you getting fired from National Security Council. How did that process take place? So um, the the debate on what was going, how we were going to treat China, really was taking place during the summer of 2017, and it was really about how are we going to structure the national security strategy, what we're going to, what was going to be our priorities, and that was a process of discovery. What and quite frankly, I, that's all I had been working on since 2014. So from 2014 to 2017, when I get to the White House, my two years in the Joint Staff, my time in Beijing, and then coming to the, to the White House in May of 2017, everything had been focused on this competition between the U.S. and China and what the implications were on a, from, on a societal level, an economic level, on a national security level. When I get into the National Security Council in 2017, I, we start the discussions on framing and writing the new national security strategy. And so in that dialogue was, you know, the first thing you do when you have a strategy is what's your problem statement? What are you, you know, what, what are the threats that you, the United States faces? And of course, you know, the same thing that you just mentioned. A lot of people talk about climate change. They talk about terrorism. What we had to uh, contend with is there's a lot of things happening um, that people outside of national security policy may be aware of, don't talk about, that infects, that affects everything that we do. And so we start, I started, because I had had those discussions outside of the national security policy establishment, I started bringing that information in. And really, for the first time, you know, by the spring of 2017, I had formed in my mind a good picture of how to describe it, what the elements of it were, and then, you know, essentially how to have a, a, a logical conversation that said, these are the challenges we face and this is what we need, we need to do. That conversation by August of 2017 was complete. And then I said, I'm going to be here a short amount of time. If I could do one thing for national security policy to change the course uh, of the United States um, going forward, to preserve our republic, it would be to secure the Internet. And so I started working on talking to engineers about what is 5G, what's the state of play uh, today. 
because we'd said in the national security strategy that data is a strategic resource, like oil in the 20th century, mm -hmm. data in the 21st century, which will drive artificial intelligence and sure. everything that, that all the algorithms that, go, that essentially guide our lives to better places. If we didn't secure that strategic resource, then we were at risk as a democracy. And so how do we take that you know, new, uh, essentially uh, beam-forming antennas with software-defined radios and networks, which something that we had used in the military for a long time, and apply, and give it to the people, but then do it in a way that actually provides security for their data, which is, uh, in essence, what you know, I had come to the conclusion, the only way that you democratize in a digital sense is by protecting, is by giving control of the, at, at the citizen level of their data. Of their data. Of their data. Okay. It is, and the, the analogy I'm, I make um, when I talk to people is, if you go back to um, Alexander Hamilton and the framing of the Constitution, you know, essentially what he was shooting for after having surveyed, you know, done an extensive survey of all the governments that existed prior, was how do we create a government where no one person, party, or group can attain ultimate power? Because ultimate power is ultimately corrupting. And so that's the Constitution, but then what if it fails? What if, you know, we don't um, actually provide for the people and somebody can gain power? Then we give uh, the American people the Second Amendment, the right to keep and bear arms so that they can fight uh, an oppressive government if that dream ever fails. And of course, in the digital world, what you saw, what you had begun to see, is a world where you may not know you're being oppressed, or you may not know who your oppressor. And in that world... You may not know you're the oppressor. You may not know you're being oppressed. Or the second one Or was. that you, who your oppressor is. Who your oppressor is. Right? Because okay. we'd seen in, in uh, for instance, after the election, uh, using big data analysis, AI bots, and social media networks, the Russians had created protests. Right? They had, it, it was ostensibly on behalf of Black Lives Matter. I'm talking about the one in New York City a few days after the election, mm -hmm. but it was really the Russians. And so what, you, what you're seeing is in um, going back to data as a strategic resource, in, in the digitized world, the ability to aggregate data is equivalent to aggregating power. And if you can aggregate power, then you have to wonder about who has the ability to aggregate data in that world. And today, the two uh, entities that can really aggregate data are large tech companies and totalitarian regimes. Democracies have a hard time aggregating data. The United States cannot aggregate data because the law prevents it from doing so. So we started this, um, this uh, unit within the State Department called the Global Engagement Center. The Global Engagement Center was supposed to fight radicalization, for instance, by ISIS and, and prevent um, influence of our population. But they can't do their job because they can't aggregate data. Not even public-facing Twitter data. Right, because there's concern uh, that we use uh, the resources of the government to spy on our own population. But one of the so one of the ways that foreign states go after us is actually to take our own social media data and, and use it in ways that influence us. And so, in order to discover that, you actually have to be in the data. And so, the only ones that can be in the data today are the large tech companies. And so, you're essentially offloading to uh, the large tech companies, one of the primary um, purposes of forming the Constitution, which is in the preamble, provide for the common defense. 
And so if you think about national security, and it gets really the heart of things, right? If you think about national security, we have an Air Force, we have an Army, we have a Navy, we have a Marine Corps, right? I don't think you're worried about, you know, uh, Marines uh, jumping into your building here or getting bombed, right? You're not concerned about that, but I guarantee you the Chinese are in your networks and the Russians and the North Koreans and everybody else. You guarantee it. I guarantee it. They're in your networks. They're in everybody's networks. This is what they do. And so if they're in your networks... That's strong statements, you're right. You're saying you're uh, guaranteeing I guarantee China it. and Russia's in our networks. I guarantee it. I guarantee it, particularly because you put out that, um, that video on, on China. I guarantee they're, they're, they've come at wow. this place. But, so, who's, who's responsible for protecting you from that? Government? I no. I would assume. Then no. who is it? Not at all. The government protects their own networks. They don't protect your networks. Got it. So, so you're, you're saying you're, responsibility you're, 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 you're responsible to for, to protect your own network. And then, of course, if you have, do you have a Twitter account? Do you have? I do. Okay. Uh, Twitter's responsible for protecting that. Twitter is responsible for protecting my account on Twitter, right? And I'm responsible for protecting my network, your data, your data, my data, right, what right. I have you, which we have, uh, we, we've right. invested. It's not the that. U.S. government. Sure, but now let me ask you this: So I had a former undercover FBI agent right here. He sat in that chair three weeks ago. So I asked him. I said, "So what is the what is the real, uh, you know, line you don't cross between the government protecting me, right? Because the government getting too involved, and hey." You know, the whole uh, uh, Apple going to DMV, getting IDs, not Apple, the government going to the DMV and saying we want to get the licenses and then government getting to Apple and saying we want to be able to get access to the phone conversations in case a terrorist does this. Well, in China, because some people will say, well, China is set up in a way where they feel like they're a company and they c control what everybody does because they work for the company, right? Where America looks at, the, this is actually how I view America, America sees their citizens as 1099. China sees their uh, citizens as W-2. So because they have more control, it's tougher to infiltrate their system than America's because America kind of leaves everybody alone. Would you agree with that? Where we are left a little bit more to ourselves without the top having access to the private companies to get data to see if anybody's tapping into our systems or no? You, you mean from our government perspective? Yes. You're, you're left totally alone. Do you think that's okay? No, I don't think it's okay. Oh, so you're saying they should be more involved. They should be involved in protecting your data. They should be involved in ensuring that, that there is not undue influence placed on you by a foreign nation so that you are making decisions based on influence that's coming from outside our borders. Okay, so now somebody's watching this and saying, well, Pat, that's exactly what a big government guy would say because let them uh, control us and they can do what's they know what's best for us to keep oh, us safe. I'm not saying I'm not saying that the government has access to your data you're saying they should uh, they should not have access to your data they should ensure that nobody else has access to your data either why would so do you, you remember San Bernardino and you have there's an argument between Apple and FBI absolutely right yeah. and Apple said we're not giving you the back I door remember that clearly. okay yeah. so think about that in the context of what we're talking about mm -hmm. here I don't think anybody should have that back door to have access to your data a foreign country so you're not saying our that. own country okay. No, nobody should. What I'm saying is only, the only one that should have say over who has access to your data is you. That's what it means to live in a, in a democracy okay. in a digital world. But then this gives me the question. So if you're saying the only one that should have access to my data, that's fine. We're, on, we're in agreement there. But if China is hacking into my data and getting access to what I'm doing, you're saying the government should prevent that from happening. 
how can they do that if they don't have access to what I'm doing? Well, they can have access to the network. They don't have to have access to your data, right? Because if your data is encrypted, they can't actually see what your data is, but they can certainly see what China's doing. I mean, that, that piece, I'm confident that we have an understanding of what they're doing within our networks. Just their actual protecting that or preventing that from happening doesn't occur. That's why, by the mm. way, China built the Great Firewall, because they wanted to protect their population because they realized that if they didn't protect their population, then globalization and the open internet mm -hmm. would allow for democratic values to seep in. So they wanted to protect their people from out, uh, out influence that came from outside you, the you country. You think that's a good move? I think that's a great move because if you're connected to a totalitarian regime and you're open and the totalitarian regime is intent on influencing your population, the way we've designed our current internet absolutely allows for But it. doesn't that mean that we become total totalitarian if we do that as well? Like to match against them, we kind of have to... If we, if we did what they did, right? So they didn't, protect, what? they didn't protect their individual data from them as a government. They just protected it from the outside. So they built a wall around it. What I'm telling you is you, you have control over your data. Not the government, not our government, not their government, not Twitter, not Facebook, that you own it. And so if Facebook wants to sell your data, then they have to get your permission and may even have to pay you to do so. If they want to sell my If they want to sell your data. Who are you more concerned about, the totalitarian regime or the large uh, technology companies? I would say today they have the same business model. Really? Of course. Tell me why. Look at them today. The, both China and Facebook have sensors. China sends their sensors to school. What do the sensors learn? The sensors actually learn about Tiananmen Square, the truth, right? Okay. Because they have to censor that discussion on the network. Facebook has sensors. The sensors go to school to learn what they need to censor on Facebook's network, right? Same business model. It's about free data. It's about using that data, except for this one, it's about profit. For this one, it's about control. And they, even down to the sensors, they have the same model. You're putting them at the same level. Wow. I'm You're not saying, I'm not, the the, no, I'm not at the same level because one is about profit, one's about control. What I'm telling you is the system that we built, the technological yeah. foundations of the system we built, then the app services and business models that we built on top of that allow for power to be equated with aggregation of data. When you do that, you create business models. The business model of a large tech company is equivalent to the business model of China. So do you think, you know how for them, like they don't, uh, they don't allow Twitter, Facebook, YouTube to go in, they have their own YouTube, they have their own Facebook, right. all of that that they right. have. Do you think, do, are you suggesting that we should only create it for US and not have it available to other countries to have access to our social media? But that, or that's not what you're saying? That's not what I'm saying. Okay, so you're not saying so, put a firewall where the social media is just no, for us. No, no. You're saying firewall to protect us from somebody else coming through the system. And, and really what I was saying, and, and what it, if you go to page 19 of the National Security Strategy, it says it right there, we're going to build a nationwide secure 5G network. In other words, we're going to build a network unlike any network that's ever been built before. And it's really about protecting individual data so that you have control of your data, nobody else does, and then you can figure out how to, how to use it. And that, then we would take that you know, network that we built, and then we share it with our ally, democratic allies and partners. If you build a network like this,
A totalitarian regime can't control the population because they can't prevent them. They don't know what, they, what, the, what information they have access to. They can't see into what they're saying, right, which is what you can have in China. They can't block you out from having other information that, that they might not want you to have because they can't see what you're doing. And it really becomes a competitive advantage, both from an economic standpoint, but also from a societal standpoint. Let me ask you this. When you came out and you had the meeting and you talked about China the way you did, right? And you kind of said, here's what we have to worry about with this side, and this is what they're going to be doing. They're maybe our biggest, they are our biggest threat, and then here's 5G, what's really going on. Did you immediately get a sense on who was for you and who was against your talking points? It's kind of like in this room. If I all of a sudden say, Tom Brady is the greatest of all time, within five seconds, I know who hates the Patriots right. and who likes them, right? Did you kind of sit there and say, oh, wow, that guy crosses arms. He's definitely not happy. He's curious. Did you get that feeling? Yeah. So, and was um, it across the board, I, one side politically, or was it both sides no, were happy and so, unhappy? So, so, so let's go back to 5G, right? Because, you know what I'm asking. Yeah, right? I know okay. exactly what you're asking. Once the decision is made to, to confront China, that was a process that was just going to run. I didn't need to really focus on that. I focused on 5G. I focused on the secure internet. When I started sharing. Because what I had done is I spoke to you know network engineers, people that built networks. When I started sharing the ideas of, that that we had come up with, if I had been smarter politically at the mm -hmm. time, I would have known exactly how to answer that question, and I would have said anybody that's got telecom in their portfolio was immediately against it, because the telecom industry was immediately against it, right? That was a, that was a clear. Um, uh, signal that if I was paying attention at the time and really understood DC in a political way, I would, again, I was a national security professional. I was a military guy. I didn't really get into politics, but in 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 much the way same way that you see uh, industry influence on just about anything in DC, mm -hmm. the industry, the telecom industry in particular, was once this kind of made its way outside of government channels, because those people that are in a telecom job in D.C. have some relationship with the industry. It, that information got out. Once it got out, the industry said, uh-uh. And, and that's when I you know, started um, my, my pathway to having my paper leaked and me asked to leave the National Security Council. Did you, kind of, you know how sometimes you know if you say something, you, you either don't know the consequence of you saying something, or you know and you say it anyways. Which one were you? I would say um, that uh, both. Oh, you, oh, okay. Right, so some of them I did not, some of them I didn't know. I didn't know the political lay of the land. But at the end of the day, it was about preserving our republic. It was about our constitution. It was about national security. Mm. It's not about me. It was never about me. When, the first time, day one, when I take the oath of office in, in, in putting on the uniform, it's not about me anymore. It's about the Constitution. It's about preserving the Republic. There's, if, if it ever became about me, then that's my time to leave. Do you think most people start like a statement, statesman like you, and then when you're around too much, then you get kind of uh, tainted based on the environment you're around? You know, what I'm, you know what I'm saying, right? You get in, to me, most people I see originally like, well, I really want to make an impact. I really want to do this. It's statements mentality. Right. And then you're like, hey, we have an opportunity to make 10 million here, 15 million here, 22 right. million here. We can have control over here. We can have more influence here. Do you think starts that went into the changes where if you want to move up, you kind of need to get a little bit out there and uh, uh, 
accept the reality of what politics could do? Well, so I look at myself as an entrepreneur. And when you take somebody that's entrepreneurial and that really believes in the oath of office that they've taken, and then you put them in a bureaucracy where they're not, uh, you, I had, um, when I went to China, that I took a year at uh, Language Institute, two years living in China, that's three years, I told the Air Force I'd give them back three for one. So that added 10 years to my commitment. And so as time went on, that, and, and as I rose up in the ranks, and I would move, say, every year, I would get a two-year commitment. So Got if it. you move every year and you get a yep. two-year commitment, you never really have the opportunity to get out. And so I'm an entrepreneur, I'm living in a bureaucracy, but I can't leave. I have no, I have no choice, I have to stay. So I can either say, you know, get angry about it, right, that I'm beating my head against the wall because you know, things need to be done, or I can just learn to you know, live within it and try to drive as much change as deep as I can for as long as I'm there. I ask this question for one reason. Like, you know, you listen to Joe Biden. He's been in the world, in the political world for a long time, right? Yeah. Okay. Did he start off, you know, having to play all these political games that you have to play, or was it a good cause? And then you look at Mitch McConnell, two names that you talk about in your book. One's a Republican, one's a Democrat. And they're both have some ties to China, right? One, Mitch right. McConnell, 1993, I think he married his wife, whose father is a very powerful, I don't know if you want to say the business owner, entrepreneur, and they're connected to the communistic regime. And then on the other side, Joe Biden, his son, Hunter, it's all over the news, everybody's hearing about all the issues with what happened there. I ask it again, this is not something that's a favorable to Democrats not liking China or wanting to support China, or this is not just Republicans not liking China or disliking China. This is purely on both sides on what you're seeing. All right. And, and when you went and investigated more, were you kind of like, oh my gosh, I didn't know the Biden family was like this or the McConnell, was it one of those things where the more and more and more research and investigation you did, the more like this is bigger than you thought it was? Did you have one of those moments yourself? Well, there was, th- so the one moment that I had uh, was when I got the briefing in the fall of 2014 uh, that was from one of the major audit firms. And when I looked, when I opened that briefing and I realized, you know, a lot of the elements of, that we would use to um, attack a country using an air attack, I saw play out in front of my eyes using economics, finance, and information. And so, you know, that was a, that was a moment, it, it broke my mind because up until that point, I thought America is the greatest nation on earth. And we're unassailable. We're the most powerful. You know, nothing could happen to us. And that was the point when I realized that, no, I mean, we could have carrier battle groups, nuclear subs, F-35s, and all of this capability and spend $800 billion a, a year on defense. But if our society was basically being attacked at their job level, at their societal level, then we had lost the ability to protect our nation in a globalized, internet-powered world. And at, from that point on, I just started studying. And 
and I read everything I could, and I talked to everybody I could. So because I had been at the Council on Foreign Relations, I had access to a lot of executives of finance companies, of investment companies. And so I started going around and talking to you know, their, some of their research offices and talking to people and trying to understand what was going on in our country and how global business worked, how global finance worked, how did investment work. And what, you know, did I ever stop finding rot? No. It's, I find it every single day. As you, you continue to pull back the layers of it, you realize it goes through a society because it's based on this fundamental belief that openness will lead to democracy. And that is a key to China, the Chinese Communist Party's power because when we believe that openness would lead to democracy, they said, there's my opportunity because they're going to let me have access to their finance, their trade, their investment, their immigration, their media, their politics, the internet, academia. I have access to everything. You know, think about Commodore Perry sailing in with the Great Flight Fleet into Japan. He had to use guns mm -hmm. to get into Japan. We just let the Chinese in. And sometimes we forced them to pay. Sometimes we just gave it to them. It's kind of the part of their philosophy, though. If you think about the whole Confucius and art of war, it's battling without having to battle, right? The whole philosophy that you talk about, which was brilliant when you talked about it in the book. But what did you learn from the McConnell family and what did you learn from Biden's connection to China? What I learned at the White House, and this was really at the White House, because when you, before you go to the White House, you always hear these stories about, you know, it's the White House calling, you know, people like stand up or like, you know, how can I help you? So, I'm at the White House and I'm you know, working with think tanks and law firms trying to, number one, expose what the Chinese were doing, but number two, come up with, you know, credible policy options that we could implement that would get them, you know, to, that would prevent them from taking advantage of our population. And time after time, they say, sorry, I can't help you. Um, I don't want to um, anger my Chinese funders or my Chinese customers. Uh, my partners don't, you know, aren't comfortable with us because we have a lot of ch business in China. And I'm like, I'm calling from the White House. And our top they would think tanks, give you this answer. top think tanks and the top law firms in the country were telling me, I can't help you. And wow. so, you know, I knew about, I knew this already, mm -hmm. right? So, it, but then when you, you really get an understanding of, okay, if they won't even help the White House, then we've got a serious, serious problem. What did you learn about McConnell and the uh, Biden family? Well, so I, I put... They're the only ones that I named in the book, and the reason I did is because it's all out in the open. You can go uh, read the sources, uh, the New York Times uh, report, Wall Street Journal reports. Biden, his son, went with him on Air Force Two over to China. Ten days later is uh, named a board member of Bohai uh, Harvest Hedge Fund, which is a billion and a half dollar hedge fund. McConnell, you already talked about, his his family, his father-in-law, um, knows Jiang Zemin, former um, chairman of the Chinese Communist Party, and his sister-in-law is on the board uh, of the Bank of China, right? What influence would you say is there? You would, they would say there is no influence. That just happened in part of McConnell. It you know, happens to be my family uh, relationships. On the part of Biden, he would say, that was my son. You really had nothing to do with me, although he did go over with him on, on Air Force Two. But that being said, it's not about quid pro quo. It's about adopting Xi Jinping's worldview. 
And his worldview, which he says at Davos many times, is globalization's good. You know, we should, we should continue to have open markets. We should continue to have open systems so that we can all collectively do well together as a global community. That's, that's essentially, I'm paraphrasing what Xi Jinping says. But that's not what he believes. Because if you read the Chinese Communist Party documents, like, for instance, the document number nine that have, been, um, uh, that have come out of the country and have been translated, then you realize they repudiate every single element of, for example, the Atlantic Charter, which is a good one-page template for the international order, signed by FDR and Winston Churchill, eight paragraphs, one page, democratic principles, free trade, rule of law, and self-determination. That's it. That's that, in a nutshell, that tells you about what the UN, WTO, Bretton Woods, all that's about. The Chinese Communist Party doesn't believe in any of those. So when, it's, when he goes to Davos, Xi Jinping goes to Davos, and he says, we need to stay open for business. It's not, we need to stay open for business because democracy, human rights, civil liberty, and rule of law are great. It's because if you stay open for business, I can ensure that we have access to science, technology, innovation, and capital, and talent. So um, let, let me ask this question. So for, for me, I used to be in business with a guy who, behind closed doors, this one guy, I would always look at him and I would talk to him. He was always afraid of one guy. And he couldn't stand the other guy he was working with. But he was frightened of him. I'm like, why are you afraid of that guy? You know, and I would always ask him, I'm trying to figure out why you're afraid of this guy. Why are you afraid of this guy? Finally, a year and a half later, I found out what it was. So he was doing some things with business behind closed doors, and it was not gray. It was a little bit past gray, close to, you know, breaking the law. And eventually he got caught. But under the table, he was paying him $25,000 a month cash, not 1099, mm. not W-2, which 25 cash is 50K a month pre-tax, right? The same as $600,000 year income. So one day, he's upset, and... You know, he tells uh, uh, one of my competitors, and that comes to me, and I find out about it. I'm like, now it makes sense why he is afraid of him. But then, when he stopped paying the $25,000 cash, the other guy told everybody about his business, and he lost it anyways, right? Right. So, so for me, here's how, it, here's how I view it, and I want to get your perspective to see how you see this. The NBA situation right now with what's going on with LeBron, right? right. Or not just LeBron. There was Maury, uh, Maury right? The Houston GM yep. makes a comment about uh, Tibet, you know, what's going on over there. And then they're upset, canceling all preseason games. And then all of a sudden, the owner of Houston makes his comments. And then from there, Adam Silver says, I support freedom of speech. Steve Kerr didn't want to say anything because he kind of didn't have a, uh, wasn't too educated on the situation at that time. Popovich said a few words. And then LeBron says maybe he misspoke, right, he, what he shouldn't have said. So for me, I look at that and say, okay, why is this happening? I want to kind of get your thoughts as well. Why, why are they doing this? Okay, why would they be doing this? Is it political? To me, it's not political. To me, it's one and a half billion viewers there. Same reason why U.S. is trying to make movies over there and you're getting rock making movies doing $600 million a year with giving love to China versus just doing it. It's another market. Actually, to me, that's pretty honest because it's money play. Right. It's not political play or anything. Man, we can sell one and a half billion people more shoes. We can sell them more media. We can go out there and you know, get the games to go over there. Instead of making 40 million a year, we make 50 million a year, right. 60 million a year. 
in a situation like this, before I ask you the LeBron opinion, but in a situation like this, do you do you process it from the standpoint of well, maybe Mitch has some uh, uh, a business that he's doing, and out of respect to his wife, he's just kind of giving the respect to China, and maybe Biden's son has some respect, and it's a son. You know, you don't have fifty sons; you got a couple sons. It's blood. He's just trying to protect his son to do what he's doing. Do you think that is an acceptable reasoning to allow them to do what they're doing, or should it be America first because of the responsibilities that you have? then your kids, your wife, your family. How do you process that? Well, let me put it this way. Um, and this was really something I had told my wife uh, leading up to 2016 uh, um, elections. Now, you were in the military, mm-hmm. right? If I had any of the relationships that I just talked about, there is no way I could have a security clearance. Wouldn't happen. I could not get that through the system. It would not grant me a top secret security If clearance. you were, let me clarify, if you're Mitch McConnell or Joe Biden with those relationships, you wouldn't be able to get the security clearance that you have. Right. Fair enough. Okay. Right? Yep. Absolutely. This, this, yes. this is just facts. So, um, if I had done, if I had taken my you know, personal uh, email or my, profe- or my work email and basically taken that all off and, and put it on... Um, you know, a server, and had some classified message. What do you think would have happened to me? You're fired. You're, you know, you're, you're court martial. Yeah, right? court martial. Absolutely kicked out. It's not even one eight. You, right? You, you're no, done. there's no yeah. doubt. Sure. And so, as you see these things, these kinds of things that that I know that you know, whoever gets elected as commander in chief has a responsibility. They're the they are the 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 chief diplomat. They're the chief law enforcement officer. They're the commander in chief. So how can that person have the kind of relationships that I, as a military member, can't even have a security clearance with or do the kind wow. of things that I would be fired or court-martialed with? So, you know, I, it's pretty black and white yeah, to me. When point. you're the commander of chief and you are requiring the people that work for you, that swear an oath that are working for you as the, the chief executive, particularly commander-in-chief, because commander of a military force is much different than being the senior executive at a, a company. Mm-hmm. It's a completely different type of authority over somebody, you know, the authority to, to not just fire, but also imprison, right? Because that's court-martial authority. And, you, and yet you do the things that you say, or you must enforce that they cannot do, then you've, then you've created a problem. And we, this is pervasive in our system, that our politicians can have the kind of relationships that we can't even allow our military members to have security clearances having. Let's leave that aside, okay? We'll just set that aside. Okay. Now, you have the President of the United States saying, here's a non-market economy that we basically led into the W-2 in 2001, and they broke every rule in the book and continue to, and they're not going to stop. So you know what we're going to do? We're going to treat them just like we did prior to going to the WTO. Prior to going to the WTO, they had to have a vote on most favored nation status every single year. Right? Once that stopped, then corporate money started pouring in. Foreign direct investment started pouring into China, and they grew like crazy. They took 70,000 factories and 3.4 million manufacturing jobs. And so the president of the United States says, okay, they're clearly not, don't have any intention on following the rules. We're going to put tariffs on because that's what we had before. They start, we started and we let them in. We're going to do the same exact thing. And then you have Joe Biden and you have Mitch McConnell saying, that's a bad idea. Now, does that relation, do those relationships contribute to that? Or is it just because they believe that? I don't know the answer to that. 
but I guarantee you any counterintelligence officer that brought me into interrogation asked me why I made that decision, they would have grounds to say, you know, you're untrustworthy. You didn't report that, you know, your, your, your relative was making, you know, millions of dollars from the Chinese. Or you didn't report that you got millions of dollars from the Chinese. So I'm not saying that there's quid pro quo there, but there's enough of, hey, I don't like tariffs, to, hey, I've adopted Xi Jinping's worldview, to, hey, this is actually harmful to the United States. I leave it to other people to kind of figure that out. It's not for me to figure out. It is for me to say that if I had done it on active duty in the military, I'd either not have a security clearance or have been court-martialed. So, so let me ask you this. That same argument, you got two different communities here, okay? You got those who have political power and influence, say McConnell, Biden, and many other names who support China, and they're saying, hey, take it easy. Right. They're an ally. I think you went to the Depart uh, Department of Commerce, and they said, China's not the adversary. They're our friends. We cooperate right. with them. Right. These were the right. words you wrote in your book, right? Okay. So on one side, you have the political people, that right. they shouldn't be doing this, right. because if they have interest with their kids, wife, whatever. Okay. Then the other side is uh, uh, investors, business owners, right. hedge fund folks, right. entrepreneurs, folks who made their money in America, yet they, they want to make sure China still has the ability to do business because they lose money, right? Of course. This goes to the bottom line. Right. Do you think their motives is okay because it's just purely money and they want to protect their investments for themselves, their clients, their businesses, and these two are complete different ways to be held accountable? That's the system we built, right? A you, business you know owner, what I'm asking. I know obviously. exactly what okay. you're asking. That's the system we built. And so you can't criticize businessmen because uh, there, our system says you owe fiduciary responsibility to the shareholder. That's your job. And, 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 and oh, by the way, you can actually be sued or brought up on charges for not doing your job, not fulfilling your fiduciary responsibility. So there could be an argument made that if you're not cooperating with the Chinese Communist Party, that you're actually harming your company. Okay? There you go. Right? Okay. So, so you it. can't criticize them for that. What you can criticize is the policies of the government that allowed for the behavior to occur in the first place. And I'll give you an example. Level one versus level three assets I talk about in the book. China has non-convertible currency, strict capital controls. Mm -hmm. Since 2015, you can't get money out of the country, only in special circumstances, and only depending on what the business that you're, you're doing. So we have plenty of corporations that have billions of dollars over there that they're carrying on their financial statements as level one assets, meaning just like cash in the bank here but you can't get it. And so, but if you're showing profits and it's going in cash in the bank in China, then how are you being compensated as an executive or, or uh, on a board of directors for that company? You're probably getting compensated based on the money you're making in China. But yet the shareholders can never see that money because you have strict capital controls in a non-convertible currency. Okay, so we've created an incentive system but just based on our accounting standards, FASB, and the Securities and Exchange Commission can change this. The Treasury Department can change this and say, no, if it's in China, it's non-convertible currency, strict capital controls, they can't get the money out, that's a level three asset. And therefore, all you corporations need to do a restatement. What would that say? Now CEOs wouldn't want to invest in China because they, it wouldn't count toward their compensation. Now board of directors wouldn't advise uh, the CEOs that they should invest in China because it wouldn't mm. count towards their compensation. We build a system that incentivizes behavior for the destruction of the country. Yeah. That's not the fault of the business 
community, that's a fault of the government. Great point. So it's so essentially a company who runs a sales organization runs a compensation structure that produces bad behavior. It's not the salesperson's fault. It's the in the, it's the organization's fault for producing compensation structure the way it did. So right. you, what you're saying is a complete restructure of our agreements and arrangements with China. You're talking about having to change a lot of things for us to move forward. You're not just saying something yeah. small here. But but what I'm not saying that we're that we're doing something that's untoward. I'm just saying let's follow the rules. For instance, in investment, right? Let's let's us follow let's, the rules. Let's or everybody let's them, China's e also every, following the rules. Right, exactly. So well, they're not gonna follow the rules though. Right. Then for example, so let's go into investing. So now, right now, we have MSCI All World Index going from went from zero to five percent to twenty percent weighting in, in Chinese equities, right? Okay, Chinese companies they come here, they uh, register stocks uh, and list on some of our exchanges. But let's go the unlisted ones, the registered ones. That's a trillion dollars they've made off our capital markets. There's no audit or transparency requirements that resembles anything that a U.S. company has to follow, right? So a Chinese company can come in here and get registered and get listed on our stock exchange and get access to our retirement funds. That's what MSCI, MSCI All World Index is followed by all the institutional investors and the endowments, the university endowments. So our retirement funds get sent over to China to pay for investments that we have no idea actually what they have because they don't have the same audit and transparency requirements of, as a U, of a U.S. company. That's a policy that we have right now. So. China can register and list their stocks on our exchanges and our retirement investment investment officers can send money over to China and they don't have to correspond to the same rules that US companies have to. So make Chinese companies correspond to the exact same rules that US companies have to and I'll tell you why they won't. Because sending over the audit data is a national security violation in China. In other words, it is treason yeah. for you to send the audit information from a Chinese company to the U.S. Let me ask you, do you see any possibility of an agreement coming up with all these technicalities? This is not a small thing here. No. So, okay, so you are no. for, you don't The Chinese have already decided to decouple. It's not about us decoupling. It's about the Chinese Communist Party maintaining control over their society. And in order to maintain control over their society, they need to maintain control over the state-owned enterprise system that they built, which says that we are not going to abide by U.S. laws about sending it over audit and transparency requirements. If you force us to do that, tough, we're not going to. How China took over while the America's elite slept, okay? Is the monster too big right now to control? No, not at all. Okay, that's what I was asking. So it's not yet. So what will be some of the things? I know you talk about it at the end of the book, but uh, if you're saying the monster's not too big to control, is that your four points that you talk about at the end of the book? It is. Let's get to the end of the interview with that. I don't want to go into that right now because right. uh, we'll get to that while we're, while we're right. going through it. So, okay. Uh, so we just talked about business, what responsibilities they have, et cetera, et cetera. And then we talk about politics. What are your views on how MBA is handling the bullying of China saying, hey, we're going to not show any of the preseason games in uh, China. Do you know what an ECMO machine is? No. So an ECMO machine is a machine that is used to keep a body alive uh, when the heart and lungs are failing. Okay. And so it takes blood out of the system, it oxygenates it, and puts blood back. Actually, I um, knew somebody that had been hooked up to one of those things. It's not 
it's not a fun thing uh, when you're dying and hooked up to an ECMO machine. China, if you say you're a, a, a dissident, you're a, you're a um, you're a Falun Gong, you're a Christian, you're a Muslim, and you get uh, sentenced to say seven years in prison for for being a, a you know a religious follower, and you won't stop. They'll type your blood, they'll sequence your DNA, and they'll give you an ultrasound in your organs, and you go on a match list. If that match comes up, they'll hook you up to an ECMO machine, hook your body up to an ECMO machine. They'll give you an injection to paralyze you, and they'll have a surgeon come and remove your organs, put them into a, a, somebody that's come in for hundreds of thousands of dollars to buy your organs, to have it put because they need a heart or, or need a liver or need two kidneys or whatever. And when they've taken all the organs out that they can use, they'll throw the body in the incinerator. So when we do things like equate that kind of behavior with, say, the social challenges that we have in the United States, then it, then it shows uh, a fundamentally misunderstanding of the difference between a democracy and a totalitarian regime. And that's, that's what I find so um, infuriating uh, about what the NBA is doing because that kind of behavior, that's what, that's the kind of behavior that Hitler was doing. That's the kind of behavior that existed in Stalin's uh, Soviet Union. That's the kind of behavior that the Chinese Communist Party is doing today. You can go look it up on the UK Tribunal on the forced organ harvesting of prisoners of conscience. Summary reports there, final reports coming. They've interviewed hundreds of people. This is happening, and yet we equate, you know, our social challenges here in the United States with that kind of behavior in China. That is, the, I think, the challenge of the NBA is not understand, understanding who they've allied themselves with. So let's take away the fiduciary responsibility that you know the NBA commissioner has to not anger the Chinese Communist Party because the NBA makes a lot of money there. Let's take that away. Let's say he's an American. And a lot of Americans died fighting to stop the kinds of things that are going on right now in communist-controlled China. So business guy, understand it. American, I can't for the life of me understand it. You know, only, the only reason it is is because they do such a good job of obfuscating, of hiding what they do, which is why the title of the book is Stealth War. And we've done a very, very poor job of opening our eyes. And the reason we've done a poor job of opening our eyes is because we are being compensated well to, to look the other way. So, fine, let's just say I watched this and you said this and I'm, I'm an NBA person. I'm like, okay, what are you talking about? I don't really, you know, I get that. But everybody's got dirt on their hands. America does. Look what America did to Japan. Look what America did to... So, you know, that's the argument, right? So, so everybody's done some stuff. How many people do we do this? How many times have we killed people? So we have blood on our hands as well. Somebody from the NBA watching this. We're just trying to do business. You know, we're just trying to make sure we keep a relationship with them because we want those 1.5 billion eyeballs. That's all we're trying to do. We saw what happened to Barkley when he went to the Olympics and then from there, Kobe's identity Olympics after, you know, the, the center from uh, Houston, Yao Ming, and then now LeBron's getting bigger. All these guys are getting a big exposure there. What's wrong with us wanting to keep our relationship with China solid to not create any kind of a issue between us? Let the politicians go at it. 
We're just basketball players. We're just trying to play over there and entertain that audience as well. Yeah, and I would say not surprising because people were doing it for Hitler. And when those army soldiers walked into Dachau and saw what the hell was going on there, you know, I would have hated to be uh, one of those guys seeing that, to see that, you know, what could be done to people. And, you know, I, I don't know what else to say about yeah. the, the, the horror of this thing that, 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 that we can sit here and, and basically say, you know, um, that's, not my de- that's not my deal. I'm just going to get my, uh, my compensation deal. I, I, look, I get that. I get the other thing where people are saying, well, you know, America is just as bad as everybody else. Okay. But, you know, it's just not, I, 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 I can't see it for me. It just, it doesn't make sense to me. It, it, I, don't, I don't think it will ever make sense to me. I just don't like us to be bullied. I've never been a fan of bullies. My entire life, I've never liked bullies, and I've never liked games. Uh, and uh, if you allow a bully to constantly bully you, and you walk on eggshells, with the next moves you're making, you will forever walk on eggshells because they officially know that they scared you. And so the next time you do something, it gets deeper and deeper and deeper. It almost goes to the story of the Roy Jones guy that worked at Marriott. Right. I think his name is Roy Jones because right. same as the boxer, right? He's working at Marriott. And if you can elaborate on what happened with the story, with him liking a tweet. Yeah, he worked in the social media department of Marriott Corporation. He liked a tweet about Tibet. It was uh, from a, um, it was a, the tweet was from a Tibetan dissident group. He didn't know anything about Tibet. He didn't know anything about China. He was just saw that somebody had, you know, given a shout out to Marriott, and he's like, he liked the tweet. Shanghai Tourism Bureau found out about it. Chinese called the Marriott Corporation, say deal with this person and apologize, and they fired him and apologized. The NBA situation is no different, where they almost fired Maury. This is, and by the way, this is happening. It's happened uh, to Mercedes-Benz. It's happened mm-hmm. to Tiffany's. It's happened, you know, it's Cathay Pacific. I don't know if you remember, the CEO resigned rather than giving up the names for the people that were working for Cathay that were, were uh, going with the people of Hong Kong in the protest. And oh, by the way, what are the people of Hong Kong protesting? Being extradited, extradited to a country that could basically put them on a donor list. So, I mean, it's, it, it is really a f- fundamental difference. There's a, there's a stark difference in the type of country that you live in where, you know, we live in today where the NBA um, players live and the country that is China. And the, the problem is, and there, there was a good article, uh, uh, op-ed by Li Yuan, who's, um, who's from China in the New York Times, mm-hmm. recently talking about what it's like to live in China and not understand the world you're living in because of the indoctrina- indoctrination and control over you know the way they think. So when you go there, you might think everybody's happy. Well, they are happy because they have very little access to anything to know anything else. Now, this this Roy Jones guy uh, from Marriott, did he get caught because the government is surveilling every yes. move we make social Absolutely. media, or? Is it the culture, because I was in UK a few months ago and I was sitting out with a couple people saying, UK, we used to be people that we protected our nation. Now the government has taught people to become spies and all tell on each other. Or is it the culture of China of telling on each other and saying, look what he's doing, look what he's doing. Is it more they have 
you know, a whole massive community around the world that's still watching that for China, or is it actually the government it's looking both. at the social media? It's both. Okay. They have they have Got huge it. they have huge um, numbers um, monetizing social that's media, and right they, there, but they also have their citizens that are taught, you know, that this is an affront to China. You know, that the Hong Kong people aren't don't really want peace. They're they're like the 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 protester or not the they're like the terrorists of 9/11. What is the biggest difference in the way you do business in China versus the way you do business in the U.S. And here's what I mean by it. I don't mean I go start a business in China and since 2015, 2016, I can't take profits out. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about I'm a Chinese citizen. I live in China. I want to start a business and compete in a marketplace there. What is the difference between me competing in China and what kind of ways I'm controlled versus me competing in America? Oh, that that's easy. There, you can do whatever you want. In China. In China, it's, Wh- it's literally. Mean? It means that whatever you uh, need to do to get ahead is is fair game, as long as you don't challenge the Communist Party. Whatever, steal, you know, trick, anything. I mean, seriously, seriously. It but is, not against each other, though. Yes, Come against on. each other. It is the most cutthroat. Com- you know. You know, in a lot of ways, it's the most capitalist system there is. So I would say there's like no regulation there. There is no regulation, which is why you have the challenges that you have with regard to fentanyl and other things. Because, you know, if you're making profits, as long as it's not uh, causing problems for the Chinese Communist Party, anything's... uh, So you want want to um, have a business, your competitor has a, um, a proprietary formula for something, you go find the guy that has a proprietary formula, hire him and... And bring them in, and hire them, and and you can do that. Is now, the the guy can sue you, but you know this is the kind of behavior that happens all the time there. Is there such things as patents there? Like, can I just steal your idea and you can't sue me? You know how there's a two-year patent thing that nobody can use, and you have the rights to go and put it out there first, or I come steal it from you. You can't do nothing about it. You can't take me to court. So they do have patents, okay. and you can sue, and and sometimes you can even win, but you know. In the end, what the, what the government is looking for and it's watching out for, and particularly it's in, in industries that they care about, like 5G, right? They don't, they're not really focused on some industries, but they are focused on, for instance, made in, 20, 20, made, China, made in China 2025 really pulls out 10 industries. If it's one that they're mm-hmm. focused on, then they'll, they'll look at that competition and then they will incentivize those that are starting to rise to the top. And so, um, but if you happen to be, you know, part of the um, Chinese Communist Party, um, you know, leadership family, then you'll have incentives to, uh, even more incentives than other people. You will have more incentives. You'll have more incentives. So over there, is it the typical old school politics of if you want to be rich, first go into politics, have enough influence, and then go start a business? Well, you can't just go into politics. You can't? No. How do you? You you have to, you know, um, even Xi Jinping applied to go to the Chinese Communist Party like five or six times before he was finally accepted. It's like a club. Right, and once you're in, you know, then you have to demonstrate. You have to you have to demonstrate your loyalty to the party oh, and okay. continue to apply. It, it it is not. I mean, it's very similar. You to can't the mob. just go in. It is very similar. Very similar to the mob. To the mob. You have absolutely. to be a, you, you, to be a made man. You right. have to do everything. You have loyal to them, and then they bring you in. The reason they've given Xi Jinping so so much power, by the way, is because he is probably the most dialed in to what the Chinese Communist Party believes of anybody. Like if if you said who is the most communist of the Chinese Communist Party, Xi Jinping is that guy, and that's the only reason they gave Got him it. all the power. He did. How powerful is their economy right now? Like, how much control do they have? What areas are they taking? I know, like, 80% of AC, you know, when you look at these numbers here, what are some of the stats, you know, about how powerful China's become? You mean in terms of 
economy, manufacturing, production, what they're building, steel, phones, shoes. Well, I mean, so uh, just one of the things I said in the book, from 2011 to 2013, they poured more concrete in those two years than we did in the entire uh, 20th century. That's, that, I mean, it's very important for you to uh, state this one more time. They did more in two years of pouring concrete, I remember the stat, than U.S. did in 114 years. Yes. Is that a factual statement? That's a factual statement. It, 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 I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find it, and let's put it, because if that is true in two years versus 114, yeah. what, what was that all about when you talk about that they're building 90 to 120 cities with the average population of 5 to 10 million, and one of the cities becoming the Silicon Valley, it's like by a lake, but they won't give the name of what the city's name is going to be, and it's got 550 square feet of office space but 95% is not occupant and they're willing to sell it for cheap and rent it for cheap. Like, is that really part of the strategy? If you want to keep people employed and you have one model and you're facing a financial challenge, then you, you go back to the model. It's just like if it's working, don't, don't make it quit. The problem that they run into is can they get the raw materials and the energy and the food to actually sustain that? And what they've needed to do that is to get U.S. dollars, and we've enabled them through our trading um, relationship with them to do that. You know, recently with the tariffs, they'd have they've had to dip into the capital markets and get through MSCI get money from mm -hmm. from our retirement funds. But for the most part, it keeps people employed, and that's that. By the way, is also why the Belt and Road Initiative exists. It's not just a, a, an a, an opportunity to really gain control of the Eurasian landmass, it's also an ability to offload some of its spare capacity in order to employ Chinese. You know, they harvest most of the world's frozen fish, right? They export 50% of their catch, right? And there's a million people employed in the frozen fish industry, mm -hmm, right? That. So it's, it's all about keeping people employed. And, and so that while they dominate these industries, it's not because, uh, not merely because they want to dominate the industry, it's because they want to maintain legitimacy. The way you maintain legitimacy is keep people employed. 90 to 120 cities with a population of 5 to 10 million? That's nuts to me, to, build, well, to be able to build something like that. Well, think about it. If you're going to build a city, though, um, the best way to build a city is to build it um, a total green, green field. Right? If, you're, if you're building a city or if you're increasing the size of a city, say like Shanghai, mm -hmm. it's far more expensive than it is just to go out in the middle of the field and build a city. Right? You don't have to do all the... You don't have to tear down and rebuild and yeah. rezone and go through all the things. You just build a city. And, 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 and I think if you, if you think about how they financed it with our recovery money, mm -hmm. a lot of it, a lot of the loans came from U.S. banks with recovery money. And, the, and that, the price of those things collapsed, as I talk about in the book. Now you have an ability to move the extra um, Three or four hundred million of people that are out in the, in the country into those cities. I mean, that's very, that's a very it's brilliant brilliant formula. Absolutely, it's a what, what's the motive behind not allowing you to foreclose on your home? Like, if you have a hundred thousand dollar loan on your home, you're late four thousand dollars. They don't foreclose on the home; they just add the four thousand dollars that you're late on the loan. Now it's one hundred four thousand dollars. Is that actually the banking system? It's brilliant. Is that really what they yes, do? Yes, it's brilliant. You're serious. So yes. that that is a real actual methodology for them? Right. Did you understand that part? Like, so you got a $100,000 loan. I'm going through crisis. I miss a couple payments. I still stay in the home. They just tack it on the loan at the oh, end. Oh, you're not even in the home. You probably got four or five of these things. Do, do you think that's a good formula, though? 
Good formula for what? For any other person, any other banking system to use. Well, but when you have a, uh, a strict capital controls and a non-convertible currency, you have essentially a closed financial system. These banks can't get their money out. So you can keep doing you that. You can keep doing that, it. That's just unbelievable. It's brilliant. Yeah. So so if if. Uh, if we, we, if we were doing that, yeah. dollars would be flowing out of this country. Well, well let me ask you. You know how the whole uh, saying goes that if you got somebody that's coming up and they're competing with you, uh, you know, uh, beat them while they're small. Don't let them get too big, right? Right. It's too late. Don't well, you? What, what I mean is beating them. Because, okay, let's transition into 5G. Let's talk right. about 5G. Because, you know, this whole thing when uh, I, I think Trump tweeted out something in 2014 and he said, uh, remember, China is not our friends or not our ally. And he got like 300 retweets. It wasn't right. something big. He tweeted this back in 2014 or 2015. And then all of a sudden, you know, one day, everybody in the news is talking about 5G. And prior to that day, we weren't really talking about it. And all of a sudden, hey, we got to be the leader in 5G. I'm like, 5G. So I'm going to start looking at 5G. Okay, 1G, 2G, 3G. 1G is the regular phone back in the days. 2G is whatever, 3G is the iPhone, you know, and then 4G is the latest phone, and then now 5G is going to be changing the game. And most people go to, well, 5G is just a faster phone, right? Because that's right. what initially, it, we've always seen the G linked to a phone. Right. Oh, my gosh, I can download a movie in 3.6 seconds right. now on Netflix, a two-hour movie where before it was three minutes or six right. minutes, whatever, right? When you think about 5G, what do you think about of 5G? and the capabilities and what it can really do to whoever that has access to it? That's a good question. So if you go back to 2007 when the iPhone came out. The Seven, 2007. 2007, mm -hmm. the top five in market cap were AT&T, General Electric, Microsoft, Exxon, Mobile, and Shell. Mm -hmm. Right? The phone comes out in, in 2007. We have, I had one, 3G network. It's not a very good, not a very good experience. 4G network comes out. By the way, we're the second country in the world to build a 4G network. Now you've got something, right? So when still Steve Ballmer laughed at Steve Jobs, said, we don't need one of those. When you took the, the platform, which was the iPhone, and you married up to the 4G network, which, is, which was the pipe for data, and it was a fast enough pipe, now you could create the apps, services, and business models that in 10 years led to the top five in market cap being Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, and Microsoft, right? So the Chinese see this and they're like, ah, the platform and the pipe. So the smartphone, this thing, this iPhone, you know, which was the first one, then Android, so Apple and, Apple and Google, right, dominate the mobile platform that the app services and business models of that economy are built on. Now look at the iPhone, it's a hardware, software, tightly integrated, mm -hmm. closed-walled system like Steve Jobs liked, and the data was encrypted. Why was the data encrypted? Why did San Bernardino happen? Because Apple's an American company, right? They know you want privacy, they encrypt their phone. So now you've got the platform, and Android also went to, on to encrypt their platform. So both encrypted, right? So private devices. Take the cloud away from it. Just look at the device itself. Sure. It's meant to be a private device. Right. Why? It's American, American um, product. Fast forward you know, to 2009, China starts to look at that, says, okay, we want to dominate the next level, right? Not, the, not just the technology. We want the app services and business models to be Chinese companies. And so Huawei gets hundreds of billions of dollars to develop 5G and ZTE. 
But then you have Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent. So they're, they're behind the Chinese firewall. They're protected. You can't have the fangs going in there. It's just the bats that control the e-economy within China. And then you start, at the same time you're developing 5G, right, the platform, and I'll get to that in a second, but you're also developing Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent. So now when you walk into, and you're starting to see the emergence of the 5G world in China. So you walk into a restaurant after you've ordered your food, and a camera picks you up, and you say, hey, David, welcome, uh, here's your food, right? So you're, you're starting to get the feel of what a 5G world is. And what is a 5G world? The platform is the network. So this is mobile computing paired with a pipe. 5G is computing and networking combined on the same platform. So this goes away. You walk outside your door and you say Uber. You don't get on your phone and say, I want an Uber. You just say Uber. Camera picks up your face or a microphone picks up you. Come on. That's what 5G is. That's what 5G is. And then the Uber shows up. The Uber, the, there's a camera on the car that sees you, knows who you are, don't have to ask you your name. You get in and you, you go to wherever you want. You get out and you go do whatever you want. So in this world, in the 4G world, this is a platform. It's yours, right? You don't want to be built, you don't want to be part of that, all of that data. Remember we just talked about how do you influence society? You don't want all that data to be uh, out there about what you're doing. Just don't carry one of these, right? Just opt out. In a 5G world, you cannot opt out. Who owns the data? This, you could conceivably say, you lease the data on here you own. If you're getting Google services, you don't own that data. But in the 5G world, not only can you not opt out because it's built around the city, it's not in your phone anymore. Not only can you not opt out, you don't know who owns the data. Everything that you do can be watched. And for every person by 2022, there's going to be, uh, for every, uh, there's two cameras for every, for every person, there's two, two people for every camera in, in, in China by 2022. They have a billion right now, I'm right, surveillance. A right, billion right. cameras in China right With now. With artificial intelligence for facial recognition, right? So all of this is getting built right now in China. And who's helping them do it? Microsoft, Google, right? All of these companies that are, are, want to deploy this world into our country. So Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent. That's where the world goes. It goes from 2007, AT&T, GE, and, um, and Microsoft to the fangs to the bats, right? Who owns the pipes? Me, as a B2 guy, the first thing I look at in the country is who's, where, where's telecommunications? You've got to take that out, number one. But if rather instead of taking it out, you own or control it, so Huawei builds the pipes, then because you're behind um, the great firewall, you built the app services and business models of the 5G world. And you're, like I said, you're already starting to see that. You know, where your, your facial recognition is built into your interaction when you go into a restaurant or when you go into a store or when you go into a bank. You know, everything's about, you know, the device is connected. Then as you build the network, then those proliferate. So 4G network, 10,000 devices per square mile. 5G network, 3 million devices per square mile. You're not going to carry 12 smartphones. You may not even carry a smartphone. 10,000 to 3 million? 10,000 to 3 million. That's what 5G does. It, the connectivity explodes, right? So that allows you to put devices literally everywhere that can make your life uh, more convenient or can track you. There's a bike in D.C. It's called Mobike. 
Have you seen these things? They're silver and orange. Look out for them next time you're in D.C. They're silver and orange called Mobike. They had them when I was in, in 2016 when I get to uh, Beijing. You take your phone. And by the way, I took, my, I took a phone, right, a, a phone that I threw away when I got home. And I had said, you threw it away when I you threw got it away home. when I got home. Load all the apps on it that a Chinese person has so I can understand what they do. You never have to carry a wallet. You never have to carry a key. It's all done on your phone. You can pay any, anybody anywhere for anything, and, and they do. 900 people uh, are on WeChat, and they spend 90% of their time in app doing things, or, you know, ordering airline tickets, buying food, whatever you want. You can have anything you want. 900 people or 900 million? 900 million people. Okay, so let me, let me uh, explain to you how, how effective what they built is. I have one of the guys working for me on one of these Mobikes. Now, the Mobike is it's just parked there in the street with a lock on it. You go over, you hit a QR code on your phone, it unlocks the bike, you get on it, you ride it, and you lock the bike. Okay, so where does that data go? You, they know it's you. You got on that bike, you went to locations, okay, so, or you went to a location. So that data is, is available. So I have one of my guys, he um, gets on a Mobike, rides somewhere, has his iPad in the basket, gets off the bike, comes back to the embassy, and realizes, oh, I forgot my iPad. Goes into the, the regional security office's office and says, I forgot my iPad and my bike. Calls a uh, local public security bureau, and those guys call the guy that's got his iPad on his phone, on his cell phone, and say, can you bring the iPad back to the embassy? That's how wired Beijing is right now. So if, if I'm, if I'm, and by the way, I heard about self-regulating brake pads, self-regulating. Is that really the case? Like your brake pads are going to be fixing e e them? everything. There's so it's, there's, there's, um, there is uh, the very high uh, speed, uh, low latency things. Like if you need a surgeon in Dallas to perform surgery on somebody that's 60 miles away, he can do that from his office in Dallas and you can have a, a robot, you know, in 60 miles away doing the surgery, it's called the tactile internet, that's coming. That's part of, the, that's part of this fabric. In, in addition to this kind of low power thing like you're talking about that just sends a signal, hey, I've got um, uh, somebody passed by this location or I, have a, I need to change a, a brake pad. All of that is built into the 5G network. So it really becomes a network of machines, not a network of people. But more importantly, there is terabytes and terabytes of data that's created about you and you have no control over it. And the people that do have control over it are the large tech companies. And you know, increasingly, because 5G, not just Huawei builds a network, but the 3GPP standards, which is the industry standard-making body, has been dominated by China. And so not only the standards have been dominated by China, the underlying patents for the technology of 5G have been dominated by China. So even if you're not building Huawei, you're still building Chinese technology into your network. So you have Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, Huawei. You have the technology, and you have the app services and business models. You have everything you need, right? So you used to have Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google dominant. As those other companies become dominant because they've created the 5G world, now you're going to see uh, the ability for China to deploy control literally everywhere. So why would we want that technology? Why would we want that technology precisely, in the US? Precisely, which is what the, was, was, what the uh, fight about Huawei is. But I take it a step for, for, further. I say, even if you're building Ericsson, Nokia, or Samsung, because China dominates the standards and the technology, you're still building a lot of their technology into your network. So rather than doing that, 
build a military-grade network and deploy that for the people. Give them access to the same type of protections that we give our military access to because we don't want their d data to be spied on. So for me, I look at it from this standpoint because then, then I'll, I'll give the, uh, the other side of the argument. I'm curious to know what you'll say about it because you know the whole Made in China uh, 2025 and you, know, uh, you read the article and you kind of look at the stats and you see how droid is from where? The operating system is from uh, South Korea, I believe, right? It's Samsung is from mm -hmm. uh, uh, South Korea. Mm -hmm. Apple uh, iPhone is from US, and then you have Huawei, NZT, all these guys are from uh, uh, NTZ, NTZ, I think, is it called, right? Is that what it's called? ZTE? ZTE, ZTE is what it's called. And ZTE is limitless with Bradley Cooper. My brain went <laughs> to a whole different place. So you have Huawei from China that they're making this phone, right? Okay. On the 5G side, if I'm looking at this, okay, they're saying China's going to be ready to deploy 5G 2020. And everywhere else, they're not going to be ready till 2025. China's ready 2020. We're not ready till 2025. How much of a penetration in the marketplace can China get having access to 5G five years before us to get it going versus us not having access? Because Qualcomm, everybody, you talk to them. No, we're not ready till 2025. We're not ready till 25. How much of a negative impact is it going to have on countries outside of China, the fact that they're starting in 2020 and most of us won't until 2025? Well, um, I think they've signed up something like 90 countries to deploy. I saw five. 57, but maybe it's yeah, 90 countries yeah, now. It was, it's moved to, towards more. Um, except U.S., by the way. Except the United States yeah. and Australia. Yeah. Everybody else is, you know, mm -hmm. there's some hemming and hawing them. There's some, of course, saying no. But, you know, uh, essentially they have the lead. This is what this was an industrial strategy on the on the part of of China. It's really about um, seeing the future. And this is what I give them credit for. You know, when I in, in my book, I call it a beautiful strategy because I think it is the most incredible, incredibly well thought um, strategy that I've ever seen. And it probably will go down in history as, as, as one of the greats. And, and it is smart for them to figure this out. But even if we have it, would we use it? We probably wouldn't use it if we, even if we have well, it anyways, I, right? I, I, mean, I think I would be terrified to have, you know, to, to use it. And I think, you know, the good thing that we have is that our telcos here are so burdened with debt that, they, that they're uh, slow to deploy 5G anyway. But if we got it, let's just say we have access to it, okay? Would the voters vote for it to be deployed? Because if you need two cameras per, let's just say, because you need that technology as well. It's not like day one we have it. Hey, we got it. We, you know, let's have the server. We go use 5G. Turn it on. It's a switch. It's a lot of development for us to be ready with the camera, with all that technology to be created. And they're saying there's some threats to it as well with health. It may not be even healthy for you to have yeah, 5G. Yeah, but I mean, our guys are over there working with the Chinese right now building it. Right, they're design. They're helping them design the algorithms. They're helping to design a lot of the technology because they've moved a lot of their design facilities over there because there's so much data. And you can go to Baidu and say, "I just need tons of data so that I can run, you know, work on my algorithm." So, you know, it's not like they're not already working with the Chinese. You know, our companies are working with them to build this stuff. Do you think a form of a, a Trump's uh, negotiation with tariffs is a way for him to expect them to give access to 5G, where I'm not negotiating with you until you? put that to us and help us speed up the process as well or no, no you don't I, think that's no, one so, of trump's so, uh, so again let's just go back to what 5g is uh it's it's uh, beam forming antennas with software defined radios and software defined networks we've been working with that stuff in the u.s military for years we have the technology we don't have to go to china china doesn't necessarily have all the best technology it's just we have all this technology we haven't commercialized so we just need to turn around and and, and put it out ourselves. Then why are they saying that we can't do it till 2025? Because the companies that do it, the equipment manufacturers, we don't have any more. 
We don't have any commercial equipment manufacturers. We have companies that work with the, with the Defense Department. We don't have any that build for commercial uh, telecoms. Now, you know, Ericsson, Nokia, Samsung, they still build equipment. But again, as I said, they're so um, in partnered with, uh, with China, except for Samsung, which pulled out for device manufacturing. Uh, three or four years ago, but not equipment manufacturing. You know that that we're they're also corrupt, or not corrupt, but you know essentially having uh, Chinese technology built into their systems. I got a couple more questions here, and we should be done. Next thing is with uh, uh, Nixon. You know, a lot of times you, re and I, I like the fact that you mentioned Nixon in the book with Kissinger. You know, a lot of times people give credit uh, to Nixon for what he did with China. Even Democrats, Republicans, Independents. Yeah, Nixon opened it up, right? And then there's a part you talk about at the time, I think it was Mao, who is uh, 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 the leader of China right. at the time, and he's sitting with Kissinger, and there's the interpreter that says, hey, you know, uh, uh, they're having a conversation, and he says to him a certain phrase. Yeah, the and ba, then, the ba, yeah, the, the ba, and the interpreter, what, what was that all about? Well, I think, again, it goes to the, to the, um, the premise of the book, there is... Um, there is obfuscation built into everything they do. And, um, and even when you do negotiations with them, by the way, um, say you come, you're, you're looking at an English document uh, and then there's a transla Chinese translation right next door, uh, right next to it, that you're looking at both documents. Oftentimes what they'll do is we'll negotiate a document in English and then they'll change the word in Chinese, right? So. So in a lot of ways, China uses that language, that language barrier as the, it's almost like the first layer of encryption. And so since, you know, um, many Americans have really no clue about the Chinese language, it's very difficult uh, for them to uh, have access to. And so it, may, it actually is good for the Chinese because it allows them to obfuscate things. And then, and then what they'll do is they'll make, trans they'll make translations in negotiations where they'll they use one word, and uh, and sometimes our translators will catch it, sometimes they won't. Really, sometimes our translators don't catch don't it. Don't catch it. So in that statement is what America is the leader. What he really meant to say is America is the tyrant. Right. Is what he meant because right. he looked right. at America as the Hitler, similar right. to Hitler's right. regime, right. It's the same way he looked right. at it. So uh, uh, and they'll, and they'll say, well, we didn't want to offend. Well, perhaps or you know. Perhaps something else was was intended there. Is the interpreter trying to save the person making a statement? Is it like because that just means that the interpreter is making the decision I mean, you, for you've the seen leader? The, you, you know what I'm saying? I've seen these before, where you the interpreter is trying to make a judgment call on how to interpret. Yeah, I mean, I remember when, Mike, when there's not a clear interpretation. Yeah, Mike Wallace goes to Iran, sits with Khomeini, and tells him, "Hey, you know, uh, a certain question." The interpreter says, "I can't ask him that question." He says, "I think it's a fair question. Ask him." And then when he asked the question, he got up and walked out. So I've seen that before as right. well. So what are we going to see moving forward? Because with China, you know, you talk about the fact that uh, China came in and said, hey, we're going to help, uh, help you out Africa. We're going to put 60 to $80 billion into Africa. And, you know, they're deep into U.S. Uh, educational system now out of our, I think, 1 million, 20,000 students, 32.5% of the students, something like that. 32.5% of our students in U.S., the international students that are here are from China. Right. right. So they're coming in, they're going into NYU, they're going to all these schools, they're essentially bringing a bunch of business to these universities. So are they going so deep in these different organizations where people are forced to support them 
due to the money and the power they're bringing in, and then all of a sudden they're going to be the same empire they were for 5,000 years? Are you kind of seeing that? that? that that's, exactly, that's exactly what's happening. And, and it really is a, it's a smart strategy because we spend Brilliant $800 strategy. billion dollars on defense, yeah. and you know Greece basically makes a deal with the Port of Piraeus. And so we say, well, you know, things aren't working. We're going to build a couple more carrier battle groups. And Greece says, I don't really care. What I want is jobs for my people. What I want is money. And, and that's what China comes in and says, okay, we'll give you money. Very cool. That's, I mean, not very cool. It's good to know that part because I, I just don't think these guys are going to slow down. I think they're, um, you haven't met people where they say, oh, you know, I'm really not that competitive. You know, I'm just, just you know, I'm just, I just want to do, do good for, and I'm just a very, you know, I go to church on Sundays and I'm just, you know, I love my family and we're just trying to be good citizens. And then deep down inside, they're like wanting to whoop your ass, you right. know, like the That's back exactly in school. Right. Did you study for the test? No, not really. I mean, I don't know how it's going to be. I'm a little bit worried, but we'll see. And then again, 98, yeah, they're like, right. wait a minute, you were studying freaking for two weeks for this test, right? I'm the one that was partying. You were the one that was studying for the test. Anyways, last thing here, speed round. I'll give you a name. You give me the first thing that comes to your mind, and then uh, we'll go from there. Mitch McConnell. I think he's an establishment. Establishment. Okay, Dalai Lama. Uh, dissident leader. Trump. Not the establishment. Got it. Ren Zhengfei. PLA. PLA, okay. Uh, again, excuse my pronunciation. Xi Jinping. Communist Party. Okay. Joe Biden. Establishment. John Bolton. Establishment. Really? Okay. Hunter Biden. The child of the establishment. Okay. Uh, Jack Ma. PLA. Boris Johnson. Hmm. I think the, the I, 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 I don't know if he's establishment or, or not. Okay. I, I think the jury's Verdict's, still out. Yeah, okay. Jury, jury's still out there. Roger Robinson Jr. I think he's a freedom, freedom fighter. Freedom fighter. Okay. And then the American Constitution. Absolutely necessary. Absolutely necessary. Absolutely necessary. You know, it's funny you say that. Uh, American Constitution is absolutely necessary. One of the things that uh, I was debating, another uh, very, very established uh, multi-billionaire, we were talking about China. And uh, one of the things that came up, I said, believe it or not, I believe one of the strengths China has is they don't have freedom of speech. And what does that mean? They don't have freedom of press. Uh, I, I went online and I looked at uh, China's unemployment, 3.4%, 2.8%. 3%, 3.1% for the last 20 years. How do I know that? And then you look at real numbers like 15, 20%. How do I know these numbers, right? And US, you know, some may hate CNN, some may hate Fox, some may hate MSNBC, some may hate Drudge, some may hate these guys. But at least they're going back and forth, allowing us to kind of watch them go back and forth. And I say, let me go do my own research to kind of figure out. So as much as free press is annoying here, it's amazing annoying to the opposite group. I'm sure folks at MSNBC can't stand folks right. at Fox, vice versa. Uh, it's amazing how much that allows us to kind of decipher from all the, you know, uh, you know, propaganda that's being sold and kind of go out there and say, okay, this is what I see. So I agree with you on the American Constitution, extremely necessary. That's why I'm here from Iran and we escaped there to come here. Final thoughts here before we leave, your thoughts. I am an investor, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm an executive. I'm seeing what's going on with China. I'm watching this. I'm a little bit more educated. I'm about to order your book. I have an order. I'm going to click on a link, order, and read the whole thing because obviously you can't get the 230 pages in a two-hour sit-down. 
what should I be thinking about and adapting or making certain audibles right now for my career to prepare myself for the next 12, 24, 60 months uh, in the future? I would pick up the Constitution. I would pick up the Atlanta Charter. I'd read those two things and I'd think about it because my campaign is about making sure that those things last. And if they last and you continue to do business in the way that you're doing, you're going to go broke. If you continue to do business the way that you're going, you're going to go right. broke. Because you can ignore me, you can get on my side, or you can fight me. But my goal is to preserve the Constitution. The way we do it is to preserve the way, uh, the rules of the road that we created. And I'm about re-establishing uh, those rules. And if you're doing business and you're, and you're making money from the Chinese Communist Party, and you, you think that that's the way that you're going to continue to make money going forward, if you think that this government is going to support that, I think you're 100% wrong. And I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure that doesn't happen. Fair enough. Uh, if you ever thought about being a motivational speaker, maybe it's not a good career <laughs> for you, by the way, because that was a very direct statement, and I love it. It's my style of communication. I wanted to tell you, I had the Mario and Kai uh, get a gift for you guys. We are going to send you to China for one week for vacation to, <laughs> to go have a great time on us. It's on the house. You know, it may turn into seven years, but we're going to start off with a week and then we'll see. As where long as, as long as it's like a, a four star hotel, <laughs> please, please don't send me one of those two star hotels. Those are really bad. Uh, anyways, uh, having said that general, thank you so much for coming out. Also, I know you came with your family here. Thank you for making the time to come out. It was a pleasure sitting down and talking with you. Value Tainers, there are books I read when I have guests that come out, and I read it to get as much information as I can. If you could see the amount of marks is in this book, I couldn't put this book down. It's a must-read for anybody that's planning on competing in a marketplace. Having said that, General, thank you for coming out. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Yes, this was great. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And by the way, if you haven't already subscribed to Valuetainment on iTunes, please do so. Give us a five-star. Write a review if you haven't already. And if you have any questions for me that you may have, you can always find me on Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube. Just search my name, Patrick Bid-David. And I actually do respond back when you snap me or send me a message on Instagram. With that being said, have a great day today. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.